7, verses 14 to 24. This is going to be the backdrop for the entire series. We're going to read this. We're going to read this portion of scripture every single week. So I want to, I want to encourage you to get familiar with it. As well, I want to, I want to create a premise. Um, if you've been coming to the 5 p.m. service or the well for any length of time, um, I have a tendency to teach a certain way. Um, uh, tonight's going to be a little bit more different. Uh, it's going to be a little bit cerebral of, a po- of, a, of an approach in the beginning of the message. I need to work out a lot of details. I said the beginning of the message because then I'm just going to shout at you the last part of it, okay? Um, no, just wait. But uh, uh, I, need to, I need to set some groundwork. I need to lay some things down for us to understand so that we understand kind of some Christian history, where these seven things came from, um, things that we may not be aware of. And so um, if you would just work with me, lean in for the next little while, and then we're going to get to the practicum of, of this message tonight. So here we go. Romans chapter 7, verses 14 to 24 says this. For we know that the law is spiritual. But I am of the flesh, sold as a slave to sin. For I do not understand what I'm doing. Come on, somebody. You ever been there before? I don't understand what I'm doing. Because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law that it is good. So now I am no longer the one doing it, but it is the sin living in me. For I know that nothing good lives in me that is my flesh. For the desire to do what is good is with me. How many of you can identify with this? But there is no ability to do it. For the desire to do it is good. It's it's in me, but there is no ability to do it. How many of you know, like for me, uh, I want to wake up at 6 a.m. Like that's a goal for my life. Some of you are great at waking up at 6 a.m. I have this idea that waking up at 6 a.m., some of you guys, you go to the 5 p.m. service. It's actually probably the wrong crew. None of you want to wake up at (laughs) 5. None of you want to wake up, right? But for me, like, Eric and I will talk about it. We'll be like, hey, we should wake up at 6. It would be awesome. We could have, like, coffee. We could sit in our, like, read our Bible and get worship before the kids get up. We can have this whole, like, we have this idea of, of what good it would be to wake up at 6. Then the alarm goes off at 6. And I'm like, get behind me, Satan. Who, who set that alarm? What were they thinking, right? So for the desire, I had the desire to do what's good. It's in me, but there's no ability to do it. Verse 19, for I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. Is what I call the doo-doo scripture, all right? Now, if I do what I do not want, I am no longer the one that does it, but it is the sin that lives in me. So here's Paul doubling down on this thought process. So I discover this law. Here's his discovery. When I want to do what is good, evil is present with me, all right? For in my inner self, I delight in God's law, but I see a different law in, my parts, in the parts of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body. And then he says this, what a wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Today as we begin our new series seven, I want to speak to you from the subject symptomatic. Symptomatic. As we deal with the genesis of sin and the sickness within. Will you just pray with me one more time tonight? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is good. It is complete. It is true. It's authoritative. Has the ability to transform us from the inside out. And so, God, I ask right now that as we, as we examine your word, as we look at your word, that you would teach us, that you would challenge us, that you would change us, you would transform us, that your word would do everything you said that your word would do. We thank you that it's a word coming from the heart of a good father, one who wants to see us grow and become everything that you've called us to be. And so we give you this time, we submit ourselves to your word tonight, in Jesus' mighty name, come on, and everybody shouted. Amen. You know, um, I've come to make an observation about dudes in general, and it's this. We're horrible at being sick. Can, can, can I get a witness in church tonight? <laughs> like, we're, 
We're horrible. Uh, I heard the term earlier. Somebody said it earlier, man sick. Thank you, Hannah. I appreciate that. Uh, we've got a term for this now. I know for some of you in here, maybe guys, you're like all tough right now. You're like, no, I'm really good at being sick. But um, when it comes down to the ladies, it's actually not true. We're horrible at being sick. Um, I retreat the minute I get sick. It's like game over. I run into my bedroom. I'm underneath the covers, and I'm down for three days. Like just nothing. I, I, I escape. And my, my wife, who is amazingly strong, and is constantly just on top of it. Like when she gets sick, nothing ends, nothing stops. She keeps going. She powers through. But her and I have debated about some things concerning this issue, mainly which is the right way. Now, apparently, I never win that argument because her way is always the right way. But the truth still stands, which is my way, okay? (laughs) And so we debate about this idea, which is um, should we stay down for three days or should we power through? And here's what I've realized. When she's powering through her sickness, her sickness has a tendency to last a, bit, a little bit longer, right? Why? Because she's not taking the necessary course to which I understand is better to take by just being down for a couple days, right? And so the reason that I believe it's good to be down for a couple days is so that I don't just deal with the symptoms, but I deal with the sickness. I deal with, <laughs> she says I deal with children, so, Right? Because the truth of the matter is, is that we, we, can, we can find the symptoms, we can look at the symptoms, we can deal with the symptoms, we can take NyQuil and DayQuil and Advil and Sudafed and all these different things, and we can deal with the headaches, and we can deal with the nauseousness, and we can deal with the sniffles, we can deal with all that stuff. But how many of you know it's one thing to deal with the symptom, it's another thing to deal with the virus? And that's what this series is really built off of. Because the truth is, is that if we were to ever get better, we have to identify diagnose and deal with the root issue causing the symptom. And you see, much of our lives, especially our faith lives, are spent simply in behavior modification, or what I call symptom suppression. All right? And when we do this, we never fully deal with what is actually going on in us. And therefore, we spend tiring amounts of energy trying to figure out new and creative ways to keep symptoms at bay. Here's the problem, that as long as there is a sickness, there will always be a symptom. Right? We live in a society and a culture with an obsessive drive for symptomatic suppression. Drink this, swallow that, try this, forget that, numb it, bury it, ignore it, excuse it, justify it, downplay it, escape from it, entertain it, give into it. All of these included in symptomatic suppression. You see, sin is something that we tend not to deal with in church life, which fascinates me. We don't like to talk about, like, somehow sin became this thing that we can't talk about in church. And the fact that I've said sin multiple times, sin, 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 like, we're all like, oh, there's a lot of sin in here. (laughs) Right? Like, freaking out. There's two S words that we do not know how to deal with in church, and they are both three letters long. Just saying. We say that, and everybody's like, he said it. But the fact of the matter is, is we've got to deal with it. We've got to work through this sin thing. And the reason that we don't like talking about it is mainly because it brings up feelings of discomfort. It brings up shame, it brings up darkness, and things that we are not proud of. I'm not talking to anybody tonight. So what we tend to do is we tend to minimalize it and trivialize it in order to reconcile it. And in doing this, we actually give it the environment and the conditions necessary for it to grow and evolve and take root in our lives. I don't know how many of you are parents of multiple kids in here, but in in our household, when one gets sick, then all of a sudden it comes through and everybody gets sick. And if you've ever been in a house like that, maybe even growing up, you know that like weird dirtiness that you feel about like six weeks into sickness where you think around every corner is some weird viral strand hanging from the ceiling? 
right? And you're like, everything is growing, something gross in here. And all you want to do is, is light, like, light a Clorox bomb that goes off in your house. Because in my mind, like, I started thinking, like, this is the perfect conditions for the Ebola virus to, like, start growing in my home, right? And I think that's what happens so many times is that when we don't talk about these things, when we don't deal with this issue, we actually give it the conditions that it needs to grow stronger in our lives. William Evans, writer of the book Great Doctrines of the Bible, puts it like this. Light and erroneous views of the atonement or the, the cross and the, and the power and gift of the cross come from a light and erroneous view of sin. If sin is regarded as merely an offense against man, a weakness of human nature, a mere disease rather than as rebellion and transgression and enmity against God, and therefore something condemning and punishable, we shall not, of course, see any necessity for the atonement. In other words, if we do not look at and deal with the power and the strength of sin in our lives, then we end up ignoring the power and strength of the cross in our lives. Does that make sense? Because the cross is the power source necessary to deal with this other power that's coming against us. And so what happens is that when we minimize that, then we trivialize that, and then we stand in a place where we believe that we are not prone to any of it. So we've got to work through this. When we understand sin, then it helps us see the even greater power of the cross. See, and this is not a new reality that we face, but rather one that has plagued the human heart and mind since the beginning of time and has spurred in us as humans the search for and source of all kinds of appropriate ways of relief. So there's this group called the Desert Fathers. They were led by this man named Abba Paconius, and uh, they, they retreated into the Egyptian desert about uh, 270 A.D., and this was their thought process. Their thought process was if we could just wander into the desert away from the, the progressive woes of society and the modernizing of the world that they were in, if we could just wander away from it, if we could just go out into the desert, then we are not going to have to deal with this issue of sin. They believed that in solitude and in this sterile environment that sin would not exist, but then they were fooled. They came to this realization all of a sudden, out in the middle of the desert, away from all of the things that they believed to be as bad, they found themselves facing something, the very thing they faced back there. Why? Because where you're at, you're at. And what's the deal? It's within us. It wasn't just about the big bad things of the world, it was about what was going on inside. Because there was something else, there was another issue. And for so many of us, here's, here's, my, here's my fear, is that we believe that's what the church is. That it's the, the desert that we go into. And so we do is we retreat in our religiosity, we retreat into the church and away from the big bad world. But the problem is that then we show up and we realize, wait a second, it's not just out there, but it's in here. Why? Because where we are at, we are at. That's the issue. It's within us. And we've never looked at it this way because a lot of us have spent our faith journey in symptom suppression. Don't do that. 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 And we've made a life of don't do that. But what if we dealt with the deeper issue that actually helped us deal with the symptoms? What if we fought what was deeper down inside? So it was at this desert place of solitude they would come to define what we would now know as the seven deadly sins or more of a historical context would be capital vices. 
All right? And while the origination has undergone some tweaking and further defining, the truths of this collection remain the same. Pride, envy, wrath, sloth, greed, lust, gluttony, which we're going to talk about a couple days before Thanksgiving. That'll be awesome. Okay? <laughs> These being the seven that represent not just the symptom, but the actual source of all that we face when it comes to that which tempts us towards and causes the rebellion of sin as a whole. There are all kinds of terms and ideas defining sin in its universe. One such terminology and understanding would come from Cornelius Plantiga, and he would say this, that sin is the culpable disturbance of shalom. And shalom being the Hebrew idea of divine peace, balance, and wholeness, a state in which nothing is missing and nothing is broken, right? But for many of us, our idea and concept of sin is that which is wrong, offends God, and therefore warrants an eternity spent in hell. Now I'm going to mess with people's theology in here, okay? Here's the truth. The truth is, is that when we say yes to Jesus, our eternity is settled, all right? Hell is not a place that Jesus sends us. It's like, you get hell, you get hell, you get hell, you get hell. It's not how it works, okay? Bible tells us that this is, hell is the, the wages of our sin, or death is the wages of our sin. In other words, it is that which is due to us. Romans chapter 6, 21 through 23, lines it out perfectly. This is what it says. You guys with me still? All right. So what fruit was produced then from the things that you are now ashamed of? The outcome of those things is death. But now, since you have been set free from sin... And have become enslaved to God. You have your fruit which results in sanctification. And the outcome is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Come on somebody, that's good news right there. And when we say yes to Jesus, eternity is settled. Hell is no longer something we need to be afraid of when we die. And Paul knew this and was communicating this as he wrote Romans 7. Why? Because we know that Paul was a Christ follower when he writes the doo-doo scripture. He's following Jesus. He's pursuing Jesus. He's planting churches and he's ministering to people. And in the midst of all this, he says, I do not understand what I do for when I want to do something that is good, evil lies at hand. So therefore, I do what I do not want to do and I do do what I do want to do. Whatever. And this is Paul. Come on, somebody. This is Paul as a person following Jesus. And then we get frustrated when we feel like it. We get frustrated when we feel like Paul felt. So what's he trying to drive at here? You see, God wants us to live life to the fullest now. See, eternity, that is the fullest that's the full meal deal, extra large, biggie size, whatever you want to call it, that is eternity. But there's this space in between called life. The Bible tells us it's but a vapor, and he wants us to live it to the full, but here's the truth, and here's what Paul's trying to communicate. It's that sin has a tendency to rip us off from experiencing what God wants us to experience now. That's, that's what he's trying to drive at. 
Because if we are in Christ, I know the gift that I have. If we are in Christ, I know the future that I have. It's a, it's a future of hope and a future of, I know what I have. But come on, somebody, how many of you have experienced this? That when we live in certain patterns and follow certain vices and deal with certain habits, it is destructive to experiencing the very thing that God has for us now. So we've got to deal with it because he's saying this. I've got a better way for you. So don't touch the oven. It's hot. No, no, I want to touch the oven. Have you noticed that we touch the oven, we burn ourselves, and we get mad at God? So, wait, 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 no, I told you, don't touch the oven. But then we go, man, but I really want to touch the oven. It's my precious. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? <laughs> so these seven... These seven deadly sins became the benchmark for diagnosis. They become what could better be understood as uh, of the, they're, they're the systemic issues behind all of our temptations, evil desires, compulsions, habits, and addictions. These seven are the force behind that which warps, misshapes, augments who we are and have been created to be. These are the things that work their way in the totality of who we are. And we cease to be aware of why we are doing the self-destructive things that we are doing. And we can't seem to stop. This was Paul's dilemma. This is our dilemma. This is the dilemma for humanity as a whole. And so here's what we're trying to accomplish in this series. That's just the intro, guys, okay? <laughs> That's just the intro. Here's what we are trying to accomplish during this series is for us to kind of change our view on this issue of sin, to actually get comfortable talking about it because at the end of the day, what if there's a better way to live it all out? What if there's a way to experience the fullness of God in the here and the now and actually drive back on some things and say, wait a second, I do not have to succumb to that. I do not have to deal with that. I do not have to find myself in brokenness because of that. I can actually step forward day by day. I can chase the horizon and not trip over certain things that I've been tripping over my entire life. Come on. That is what this series is about. That's what we're working for, and that's what we're working towards. So over the sec next seven weeks... We're going to be dealing topically with each of these issues. And it's going to be a lot of fun. <laughs> right? <laughs> it's going to be a lot of fun, right? And uh, we're going to dig into it in ways that you probably haven't understood before. There's going to be some stuff that's going to, uh, it's going to transform our minds, going to transform our heart. We're going to look at things. We're going to realize. Guys, I've been studying this out, and once again, I found myself on my knees before God going, oh, my goodness, I deal with that. That is all me. I did not know that I dealt with gluttony. Because we think it's one thing until we actually explore it, all right? And it's going to mess with us a little bit. But like I said, if you'd give me the permission to walk through this stuff, I think we're going to be freer on the backside of this than we've ever been before. But what I want to do is I want to lay a foundation. So we need some truths to kind of help us, I don't know, uh, posture our hearts for this series. That would probably be the better way to, to put it. So here, here's the first truth that I want us to understand tonight. i got four of them. Need your help. Come on, Bishan, number one. Here's the first truth. We tend to underestimate what is not understood. We tend to underestimate what is not understood. 2 Corinthians 2, 9 through 11. This is Paul writing, and he says, I wrote for this purpose, to test your character to see if you are obedient in everything. Anyone you forgive, I do too. For what I have forgiven, if I've forgiven anything, it is for your benefit in the presence of Christ, so that we may not be taken advantage of by Satan. So if you ever wondered, like if, you, if you've ever been tripped out about this whole devil thing, and you're like, where is that in the Bible? Right there. It's right there. 
And this is what he says. Then he goes on to say this. This is so powerful. He goes, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. We are not ignorant of his schemes. Do I have any sports fans in here? Show of hands, sports fans. Football specifically. Yeah, football. All right, cool. I am, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, I'm a Seattle Seahawks fan, mainly because it's the Lord's team. And so just have to be clear on that. <laughs> but if you, if you understand anything about football and the Lord's team, um, if you understand anything about it, the coach does not just get the players behaving certain ways and doing certain ways and doing certain things to win the game. What does he do? He studies game tape. Why? Because you knowing how to do certain things is very different than understanding how the other team works. And so we got to go into this game. Ephesians chapter 6 tells us that, the, that this battle that we're in, it's not flesh and blood, but it's against powers and principalities and spiritual things. So there's a different thing going on. There's a different game going on. And what we need to understand is how the enemy works in our lives. Because why? We tend to underestimate what we do not understand. We tend to underestimate what we do not understand. The Bible is, is littered. With scripture after scripture after scripture talking about getting wisdom. Prize it highly. Why? Get wisdom. Because wisdom helps us look at situations and circumstance, circumstances differently than we would otherwise. All right? When we understand sin, we understand the schemes of the devil, then we are able to be on guard, live with wisdom, awareness, create boundaries and safeguards in our lives, employ accountability structures and relationships, and understand the importance of repentance. We've got to understand the scheme. And this series is an attempt to help us understand these seven things. How many of you have ever been on a diet before or lifestyle change? <laughs> All right, many of us in here. How many of you find it impossible to go to a friend's house when you're dieting? Right? Because they don't care. We went to a friend. <laughs> they don't. They want to ruin your life. And so we went to a friend's house just like we're trying to watch where we're at and we're counting calories and doing these different things and because uh, we're sitting, getting ready to celebrate 15 years in January and we're going to go on a killer vacation and it's going to be awesome and the sun's included. So um, we're excited about that. So we're paying attention and we're trying to and working out and doing all those things. So we went over to a friend's house who goes to our church and uh, they've heard me preach quite a few times about these little tiny demons called Sour Patch Kids and so who have a tendency to rule my life. <laughs> And so here we go, we walk into their house, we get in there, and the kids go out and play, and we're talking and everything. Well, normal people, their appetizers are like vegetables, hummus, pita, right, <laughs> things like that, maybe, so, not them, mm -mm. they had like the multi-grain chips, they brought that stuff out, and then they're like, here's this if you want this, but we love you guys so much. Then they brought out a bowl of Oreo cookies and a bowl of Sour Patch Kids, both of our vices. <laughs> and they plopped them down, right? And I was like, no, 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 no dessert before dinner. No dessert before dinner. That's the rule. And then like three minutes later, I'm like, <laughs> I'm just charging these Sour Patch Kids. And they're like, do you want more? No, I'm good, right? Like, I'm all these Sour Patch kids in my mouth, and it was like, what am I doing right now? And I, like, it was just one, and then it was just one, and then it was two, and, and what was happening? Like, none of us call our friends before we go over to their house and be like, hey, just to make sure, you're not going to try to mess up my diet, are you? None of us want to be that person, right? So I went in unprepared, right? I was blindsided. 
are these Sour Patch Kids, and I had no other option. And the funny thing is, is like, that's a moment where you're like, oh, yeah, that's hilarious. The problem is, is that we do that in life and faith. Is that we're trying to live this life that God has called us to, and on a day we're feeling a little bit depressed, instead of running to the people that we know we should be running to, we run to a different spot. Or because we are unguarded and we are unaware and we underestimate the schemes of the enemy, we are confused as to why by the end of the evening we find ourselves being able to barely walk because we drank a little too much. I do not do what I do want to do, and I do do what I do not want to do. And I find this battle within me. Come on, am I talking to anybody tonight? Why? Because we underestimate what we do not understand. It lies at the door. And it's right there waiting for us. Number two. Second thing is this. Everybody shout number two. We tend to minimize what we do not see in the mirror. We tend to minimize what we do not see or what is not seen in the mirror. 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16 through 17 says this, For all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. In other words, the word of God is a mirror for ourselves to look in, not a hammer to hit others with. You're hearing me tonight, church. But don't we like it as a hammer? It's so much more fun as a hammer. Hit you, hit this person, hit this person, hit that person, right? But we'll never hit ourselves with it. But it's not meant to be a mirror, or excuse me, a hammer. It's meant to be a mirror. Because we tend to minimize what is not seen in the mirror. Here's the deal. Here's the truth. If we can see it, then we can name it. And if we can name it, then we can deal with it. And much of what we deal with and face in life, vices, sin, brokenness, habits, they remain nameless and therefore it keeps its power through anonymity and secrecy. When we name it and we call it out, it then begins to lose its power of secrecy and therefore its power over us. And this is why most of us don't like confrontation and truth, because it's easier for us to try to hide, justify our actions and thoughts and ideas and emotions, all in the name of this is who I am. That's the new pop term right now. That's what we're saying about everything. This is just who I am. This is just who I am. No, 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 you can't tell me about that. This is just who I am. And if God is a good God, if he loves me, he loves me just as I am. And you would be 100% right. And 100% wrong. Because you are 100% that right that he loves you just as you are. He loves you right where you are at. But he loves you enough not to keep you there. That's the thing. If my daughter falls down and, and wrecks herself, which she's doing all the time right now. Wounds and bruises and everything like that. How many of you would go... If I walked over to my daughter, and she's bleeding, and she's crying, and she's snotting all over the place, it was a horrible fall. If I, if I went over to her and I said, oh, baby, I love you, we're going to just stay right here forever. <laughs> How many of you would be like, this dad is messed up? No, what makes me a good father? 
What makes me a good father is I come over to her right in her injury, right in her mess, right in the blood and the sweat and the tears and the snot of it all. And I say, baby, I am so sorry you were hurting. But guess what? Dad's going to pick you up and we're going to bring you over here and we're going to wash you up and we are going to bandage up the wounds and we're going to deal with the things that are hurting. Why? So that at a certain point in time, I can set you back up onto your feet so that we can then walk further into everything that we have going on. But some hydrogen peroxide has to be used on that gnarly cut on the knee. How many of you have had that stuff before? Right? That's when parents say, this hurts me more than it hurts you. Well, let me cut you and then put it in you. We'll see who hurts what. <laughs> we tend to minimize what is not seen in the mirror. We have to see the things that are there. And that's why we have to do a series like this. How many of you have ever seen a child fall before, like get hurt before? And some of us haven't. This is what happens when our kids, when they were smaller. When they fall, we used to do this so that we didn't have to deal with crying. We'd start clapping. Yay! Yeah! Right? Some of those of you are like in childcare, you know what I'm talking about. The kid falls, you watch the fall happen, you're like, oh, that would hurt me. But we don't do that. We're like, yeah, that was so good. So good. Yeah, yeah. Look up, look up, look up. Why? Because we don't want them to see what's right here. Because if they see what's right here, what are they going to do? They're going to lose their mind. Unhinged, off the rails, gone. Right? Why? Because they just saw the wound. And for many of us, the reason that we don't find healing through these things is because we ignore or refuse to look in the mirror. To see what's there. Because when we see what's there, it creates a sense of urgency. Doesn't it? When you realize, oh, I hit my head. And you don't, and then you go, oh, there's blood. We got to do something about this. Right? Because if you hit your head, that's the check. The check is, do I really have to do something about this right now? <laughs> no, I'm good. <laughs> I'm good. Right? But when you go, you go, oh, my goodness. Oh, what? How? We got to, that's what we're trying to get here. So when I look at this stuff, I all of a sudden can pull back and realize, I gotta, I gotta fix some stuff because this wound that I have, this thing that I'm dealing with, this proclivity that I have, this habit and this hang up and this hurt and this desire, if left unchecked and not dealt with, is going to lead me places that will destroy me. <laughs> so we tend to minimize what is not seen in the mirror. Number three, every shot, number three. The third one is this Are you getting something tonight? We tend to corrupt what has been consecrated. I wanna fast forward through a bunch of verses here, but in Romans chapter one, in verse 24, it says this, Therefore God delivered them over in the desires of their hearts to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. Verse 25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served what had been created instead of the creator who was praised forever. And previously before that, Paul, in this, in this verse, in these verses, he's talking about the things that we should be seeing God in, but we ignore God in it, in all of his creation, and we end up worshiping it and abusing it. Why? Because at the end of the day, we tend to corrupt what has been consecrated. Why do we do this? Because we end up worshiping what has been created, not the creator. And we do this by seeing everything through the eyes of pride, envy, wrath, sloth, greed, lust, and, and gluttony. In other words, we try and use what God has created, the beautiful things that he's created, and we break it. 
I'm going to preface this next statement with this. If I offend you, I'm sorry. That's kind of like the, with all due respect, <laughs> all right? I have an issue with some people in our church that I think is represented across all of our services in both campuses. Um, that is those of you who put ketchup on steak. <laughs> Here's why. And if you're vegan or vegetarian in here, I love you, but I'm dealing with meat right now, okay? In my house, we love steak. We, we eat steak, and, and, uh, and I don't know if you've been, this, been in, into a place like this before or been around people before who have a tendency to put ketchup on steak. Here's the thing. Here's the rule. Here's the law. It's in the Bible. You do not put, <laughs> you do not put ketchup on good steak. Why? Because it's a good steak. I was just sitting with somebody at lunch, and they were, they were laughing because we were talking about this illustration. They are like, yeah, I went to this really, really high-end steak restaurant. And when I went, I ordered the steak, and it was like, they were telling me how much the price was, and I was like, okay. And he goes, and then the waiter was literally offended at me. I said, why? He goes, because I asked for A1 sauce. Here's the deal. A1 sauce is just classier ketchup. That's all it is, okay? So stop both. It's an egregious act against all things meat, okay? <laughs> and I go, what did he do? He literally, he brought the steak out, and he goes, we have no A1 sauce in this restaurant. So he said, he said, because we are an amazing restaurant, I will literally walk out of here and go get you A1 sauce. But I could potentially lose my job, and I will offend that chef in there. So can you do me a favor? Can you try this steak before you destroy it? So he did. He tried the steak. And he's like, dude, the steak, you could cut it with like a fork. Like it was just butter, right? And then the waiter came back. He had polished his plate off. Everything was good. And he goes, I looked at the waiter and went, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Why? Because he was about to corrupt what had been consecrated in the house of meat. <laughs> Come on, how many of you would get down with me on this is that we have a tendency to break things that have been made beautiful. We tend to take things that God has created for good moments in the right timing, in the right season, at the right moment, and we have a tendency to mar it, mess it up, and destroy it. And here's why. Because we want to do a roundabout or a run around God. We want to take that which he created to fill the void that which he can only fill in our lives. So we take what he has made to fill the void that only he can fill. And at the end of the day, we abuse the beautiful thing that he has for us and wants to give us by making sure that it takes the place of his place in our heart and in our mind and in our life. Is that you're tracking? We got to be careful with these things. This is why we have to walk through this series. We have to walk through these things so that we understand these concepts. Augustine refers to this substitute fulfillment pattern of sin in his confessions where he says this, my sin was that I looked for pleasure, beauty, and truth, not in God, but in myself and in his other creatures, and the search led me instead to pain, confusion, and error. It's crazy. It's deep. We take so many of the beautiful things that God has created for us, and we break them. And in this series, by looking at the seven, we'll discover how to counter this way of living and being. Think about that. Through those, through those pride, we break things in pride. We break things in envy. We break things in wrath. We break things in sloth. We break things in greed. We break things in lust. We break things in gluttony. 
because we don't deal with the virus in, within. We just try to do symptom suppression. I ask the team to pop back up on stage. And here's the last thing. Come on, everybody shout number four. So you may be wondering, is there good news? <laughs> there is great news, actually. I almost, if, I, if you think about it, I'm probably starting this series with where we should end it. But I want to start it like this so that as we work through these seven, we can take a more logical approach at them and actually deal with some deep things that are attached to all these things. So here's the fourth truth that we need to understand, and it's this. We tend to conquer what has been crushed. When we understand what has been crushed, we then conquer it. Romans chapter 16 verse 20 says this, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ will be with you. Come on somebody, that's good news. Now watch this, Colossians chapter 2 verses 8 through 15. Uh, this is kind of like the William Wallace put a kilt on, paint your face blue, war cry of the New Testament. And I love what he says right here. This is Paul writing once again. So I want you to get this contrast now. Paul says in Romans chapter 7, I do not do what I do want to do, and I do do what I do not want to do. And I watch this war within me, and I look at this law within me. Who will, what a wretched man I am, who will save me from this predicament? Colossians chapter 2, 8 through 15 gives us the answer. Be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elements of the world rather than Christ. For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. Watch this. And you've been filled with him. Who is the head over every ruler and authority. You were also circumcised in him with the circumcision not done by hands, by putting off the body of flesh. That flesh is what Paul was talking about in Romans chapter 7. In the circumcision of Christ, when you were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and is taken away by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly he triumphed over them in him who will save me Jesus who will rescue me from this pattern Jesus who will lift me up when I fall down Jesus who's going to heal the wounds and the broken things Jesus we need to understand that Jesus has already won it all for us. So guess what? I can step away from Sour Patch Kids and Oreos. <laughs> Jesus has already conquered it, so I can stop putting ketchup on my steak. Are you guys tracking with me? He's already done this, so all of a sudden when the thing that tempts me, I can go, whoa, whoa, wait, wait, wait a second. I don't, I don't need that. And when I'm tempted to use this thing and abuse this thing that's made beautiful and break it for my pleasure in the wrong timing and in the wrong moment, I can step away and say, no, no, wait a second. He's got something better for me in a better time. And the thing that used to trip me up so much, I don't need to be tripped up over. I can just step over it and be, wait a second, oh, that's underneath my feet at the end of the day. Come on, do I have any old school church people in here? Old school church people. Three. 
Well, that means our mission's working, so that's good. We don't have old school church people, that's good. Well, back in the day, when services were like two and a half hours long, right, and we just carried on about, and it was going and everything like that, there was this song that we'd sing, and it, and it made rounds, and it was an amazing song, and, uh, and everybody would get hyped, right? They would get like crazy hyped on the song, and the song went like this, I am not going to sing it, I'm just going to talk it, because then I'll ruin everything, right? No, no. <laughs> but he says, I went to the enemy's camp, and I took back what he stole from me. I took back what the devil stole from me. And we would sing this on and on and on. And I was thinking about this the other day as I was reading this and writing this stuff down and everything like that. And I said, wait a second. At the end of the day, i got to understand I can live victorious. Why? Because I have a God in heaven who has conquered all things through Christ Jesus. So I can go to the enemy's camp and I can say, nope, that's mine. And I'm taking back the ground. And this series, guys, this, these next seven weeks, I am believing that for so many of us where we've messed up and where there's been habits and addictions and all these things, we're going to take back what the devil stole from us. We're going to take back what has messed me up. We're going to take back all the things that have marred me and scarred me and bruised me and broke me. I'm going to take it back. Why? Because I have more in Christ. I have more in what he has for me. I've got a future and a hope. Take it back.